Welcome to Good Medicine Explained. This is episode number six for the week of July the 5th, 2020. I am your host, Dr. James R. Brown. I hope everyone enjoyed a safe and sane July 4th weekend. Although you may not have been able to gather in large groups, we all probably enjoyed some of the usual 4th of July foods, like the barbecue, hot dogs, hamburgers, potato chips, potato salad, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, beer, etc. For the sake of argument, let's imagine that you're someone under the age of 60. And what if I told you I could add an additional 5 to 10 high-quality years of life to your life? Would that interest you? If so, kick back a moment and let me explain a little information about metabolic syndrome, our topic for today. Metabolic syndrome is called by several different names and terminologies. It's also known as Syndrome X. It's known as Insulin Resistance Syndrome. It's also called the Obesity Dyslipidemia Syndrome, or also the Deadly Quartet. Actually, metabolic syndrome is the co-occurrence of certain physical and laboratory traits, such as abdominal obesity or heavy fat deposits in the midsection of the body, hypertension, hyperglycemia or high blood sugars, and dyslipidemia or abnormal serum lipids. Now, the prevalence of this condition varies based on your age, your race, your gender, and even your weight gain. So, for example, if you're a man, between the age of 40 to 49, you're more likely to pick up the features of obesity or a low HDL, the good cholesterol, or you may have an elevated amount of triglycerides. And then as a young adult, hypertension creeps into your life. Then later on, probably into your 60s and on afterward, diabetes has become the predominant health condition. Now contrast that to a woman. Her life basically starts with the risk factors of obesity and low good cholesterol in her young adulthood. And then probably around her middle age, hypertension and elevated triglyceride levels become more prevalent. And then finally, in the later stages of her life, in her 65 to 70 age range, diabetes mellitus picks up. Now as far as races are concerned, the highest prevalence is among Native Americans and Mexican Americans. The incidence rate is somewhere around 30 to 33 percent, depending on who quotes the statistic for you. As far as gender is concerned, African-American women and Mexican-American women have a higher incidence of metabolic syndrome than men do. And then I had also mentioned about your weight. From a very famous and always quoted 
Framingham Heart Study, they've noted that having a 5-pound weight gain over a 16-year period of your life is likely to increase your risk of metabolic syndrome somewhere from 21 to 45%. So, again, I'd like to give you the science. What's happening pathologically in our bodies? Well, metabolic syndrome is a pro-inflammatory and pro-thrombotic state. It causes damage to endothelial lining of coronary arteries and carotid arteries, which eventually leads to the problems of heart disease and stroke. The condition impairs our kidneys' ability to remove salt, which in turn provokes the hypertension. You also get an increase in your serum triglyceride concentrations, which is leading to your cardiovascular disease. You get an increased risk for clotting, Blood clotting, which we call hypercoagulable states, will lead to heart attack and strokes. It also increases the deposition of fat into the liver, which provokes hepatic inflammation and what we call the non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which leads to problems of cirrhosis and liver failure. And then last but not least, it's going to impair the production or response to insulin in the body, which is going to eventually lead to your diabetes. Now, there are some potential serum markers that we use in helping us, aside from getting your blood pressure and your weight and your body mass index when you come into the office. We sometimes order lab tests like the CRP, or interleukin-6, or another rarely noted uh, measurement called the plasminogen activator inhibitor, or the PAI. There is a causal association between elevated levels of CRP and the condition of metabolic syndrome, but It hasn't been actually demonstrated in good science uh, reviews. Now, there are five major criteria or traits that are used to help us identify who may be at risk for metabolic syndrome. These criteria have been uh, produced and reviewed multiple times through critical analyses from the National Cholesterol Education Program, or the NCEP, and the Adult Treatment Panel, the ATP, also the International Diabetes Federation, IDF, and the World Health Organization, or WHO. All of them have kind of concluded that there's five traits that we need to pay attention to. The first one is the girth or abdominal obesity around the waistline, the circumference. I don't know how often it happens in your doctor's visit. They will actually measure uh, your waistline. And for men, the limit 
is 40 inches. For women, the limit is 35 inches. So any value above 40 for men or 35 inches for women would be considered a measurement for abdominal obesity. The next measure we use is your blood pressure. The systolic blood pressure, or top number, should not be greater than 130, and the bottom number, or diastolic blood pressure, should not exceed 85 millimeters of mercury. So any value of 130 over 85 or greater can be a criteria for this metabolic syndrome. Another lab finding is in the lipid panel. You'll have a measurement called the HDL, or the good cholesterol. So the HDL, or good cholesterol, for men should be greater than 40. For women, it should be greater than 50. The other measurement in that lipid panel is the triglycerides. The triglycerides should be less than 150. And then, of course, the big ticket item on the lab test would be your fasting blood sugar. If you've done a proper 12-hour fast for your lab test, your sugar should not be greater than 100. If it exceeds 100, sometimes we used to do a test called an oral glucose tolerance test, but now more often we order a lab test called the A1C, which reflects what the blood sugar has been like for the previous three months. So the five criteria again are the abdominal obesity, your blood pressure, your serum HDL or the good cholesterol, number four would be the triglyceride, and number five would be your blood sugar. There are also some minor criteria which we put into place sometimes to help us refine who might be at risk. One factor we can't control is your genetic predisposition. If you have come from a family where the gene for diabetes is prevalent, then there's a likelihood that you may incur some carbohydrate metabolism problems and some of the other issues of weight gain and high blood pressure and such. Another factor that affects half of the population is being a woman who has now completed menopause. In the postmenopausal state, physiologically, these issues seem to accelerate and occur more often. Smoking, of course, is a major risk factor for cardiovascular disease by itself, but actually amplifies the metabolic syndrome. Having a low household income also has an increased risk of developing this metabolic syndrome. And some of the answers are obvious, depending on food sources that people are able to purchase and buy. Another minor criteria is having a diet that's high in carbohydrates. Some people really are drawn to the bread and the potatoes and the rice and the pasta. And those types of things increase your carbohydrate consumption. Uh, interestingly, not drinking alcohol 
has been associated with having a increased risk for metabolic syndrome. And of course, a physical inactivity is going to be another factor. Uh, it's going to cause poor cardiorespiratory fitness, which is actually a very strong indicator for the dysmetabolic syndrome. And then there are some medications that are sometimes prescribed that can increase this risk, such as clozapine, which is actually an atypical antipsychotic uh, medication that is used for people that need it for their stability of uh, mental conditions. And so all of these come into play, but the risk will also differ as a function of your insulin sensitivity in your body. As I had spoken last week about insulin resistance, the insulin resistance state will put people that happen to also have obesity at a very high risk for developing this metabolic problem. So what do doctors do in our offices? How are we able to give a patient a reasonable estimate or idea if they're at risk for this? Well, some of it might be obvious. Look in the mirror. <laughs> you might have a pudgy belly, and you might uh, have a lifestyle that is not active. But, of course, other things come into play, and that's where these standardized instruments, these risk assessment algorithms, and the one particular one that we use often is called the Framingham Risk Score, or a systematic coronary risk. These are algorithms where you plug in the patient's biometrics and it tabulates a relative risk when it incorporates all of that information. Now, just the presence of having metabolic syndrome alone is a predictor for an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, but the Framingham Risk Score is a better predictor of cardiovascular disease and stroke than just having metabolic syndrome itself. As you probably know, you can measure your cardiovascular disease risk by EKGs, echocardiograms of your heart, an ultrasound of the carotid arteries in your neck, or checking the uh, blood pressure in your ankles and contrasting it with your arms. That's called an ankle brachial blood pressure index. So how do we actually prevent or put controls into this situation? Well, it's primarily based on your lifestyle modifications. What you want to try to do is lose about 10% or more of your baseline weight. So let's imagine that you are five foot eight and you weigh 210 pounds. If you lost 10% or 21 pounds, you could have a significant reduction in the processes that are happening in your body with the inflammation and with the thickening of your blood that I mentioned earlier. 
and that could reduce your risk. So how are people accomplishing this? Well, as far as weight loss is concerned, the one standard diet that seems to offer consistently the best response is the Mediterranean diet. The diet that is plentiful in fruit and nuts, olive oil, whole grains, and vegetables. Another way is to follow what's called a low glycemic index table, which I spoke about last week, uh, which ranks and grades every food in relative comparison to pure sugar. The other dietary measure that people can put in place is increasing the fiber content. Fiber is actually included in the carbohydrate metabolism, and you want to get about 30 grams or more of fiber per day in your diet. It's also helpful if you can limit your total carbohydrate consumption so that it doesn't compose more than 50% of your total calories for the day. And you want to try to limit your total fat calories so that they're not making up more than 30% of your calories for the day. Of course, my favorite way to help with the weight loss is aerobic exercise. And you've probably heard in my previous podcasts, I recommend to patients that they have 40 minutes of moderate intensity exercise four days a week. Now, if you're not up to that level currently, you gradually try to work your way up to that over several weeks or months. Interestingly, if a person were to do something like liposuction and just suck out some of the fat that's excessive around their body, this actually does not improve your insulin sensitivity or your risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So it might make you appear better, but it won't actually produce the other physical effects you want. Now last in this way of preventing the metabolic syndrome is medications. We have available to us as physicians what are called oral hypoglycemics, medications that lower the serum blood sugar. The most popular of that category is metformin. Metformin significantly reduces diabetes-related endpoints. Now, the endpoints of diabetes would be sudden death, hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia that literally causes you to die, myocardial infarction, angina or chest pain, heart failure, stroke, renal failure, amputations, retinopathy or problems with the retinas of the eye, blindness and cataracts. All of these are endpoints of what happens with diabetes. And so having a medication like metformin on board will drop all causes for these mortalities significantly. Uh, Another factor of medication are the statins, the medicines that lower the cholesterol and raise the good cholesterol. The statin medications are designed to cut down your total cholesterol and the bad cholesterol so that 
the LDL or bad cholesterol measures under 100 and your good cholesterol is boosted up for men above 40 or for women above 50. And just by using the statins, you can decrease the major cardiovascular events from metabolic syndrome by 10 to 13 percent. So they have a big role in the management of metabolic syndrome. And last, in terms of medications, are the antihypertensives. If you happen to be a patient that has insulin resistance or is actually full-blown diabetic, then we use a certain family of antihypertensives known as the ACE inhibitors or the ARB medications. ACEs are the angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors and typical medications are lisinopril and bonazopril, those type of medications. And the ARBs are medications like valsartan, losartan, omosartan. These medications lower the blood pressure, which is part of the constellation of symptoms of metabolic syndrome. So, in summary, let me review some of these takeaway points. One, metabolic syndrome has a variable prevalence within certain ages, genders, ethnicities, and genetic inheritances. Number two, it's a good idea to try to get a risk assessment from your physician and learn what your projected 10-year health risk for cardiovascular disease might be. And then lastly, the takeaway point I want to stress is prevention. I definitely recommend lifestyle modification and only in certain circumstances where medications are indicated would you go that route. If this particular topic or any of the previous episodes have provoked questions for you, be reassured that I do regular Q&As on my Instagram account at jrbrownmd, where you can submit your questions there through direct message. However, I emphasize that I do not serve as a replacement or substitute for your own personal physicians nor do I provide individualized consultations outside of my practice. I'd also like to thank my podcast production team, Lauren and Natalie, who really are responsible for making this podcast possible. Until our next opportunity, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be loved, and may you have a peaceful heart. Thank you.